Our guest is Bill Sosinski of Energime University talking to us about his most recent trip to uh, China. We're going to learn all about the air pollution, which having watched the Chinese Grand Prix a couple of times, I know exactly they, they have a real problem with uh, pollution. But then I guess the rest of the world does with their diesel fuel as well. So hasn't that got something to do with it, Bill? Well, I, you know, with China, they just have so much industry at this point. And they're so productive in terms of their economics. You know, they they make everything for the world, such that mm-hmm. uh, you know they have to provide that power, and most of their power comes from coal, which is you know really a dirty fuel source, and it's very yeah. difficult to deal with and clean it up and scrub it, and it's expensive. Such that that hasn't been something that they've been concerned about to this point, but at this point they're very concerned about it because it's not only fouling their air from the standpoint of aesthetics, it's going to have a pronounced impact on people's health. And, and, you know, their population is getting very, very concerned about that. And that's really where we are. Uh, One of the things that that was pointed out, there's a, uh, for people in the West who aren't aware, PM 2.5, which means particulate matter 2.5, 2.5 being the size, microns, is a type of pollutant, a pollutant, that gets into the atmosphere, and we have it in the United States too, to, you know, whatever degree we have, if you're in L.A. or, you know, whatever other city where there's lots of cars and lots of people, that is a pollutant that's so fine that when you breathe, it goes directly through your nasal passages into your bloodstream. And, you know, this potentially will, over time, create lung cancer, emphysema, heart disease, all of the related illnesses and maladies that come with with air pollution that you would get from smoking a cigarette. So when you're in certain cities in China, the pollution is very, very similar to many of the cities that we had in the West during the Industrial Revolution at the very, very beginning. Places like Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh in the United States or, you know, places that the air was just thick with, with coal dust. It's not a healthy thing, and they know that. So they're looking at this point at every conceivable technology that they can employ to start cleaning up the air. Because when the air clears in China, it's a spectacularly beautiful country. And yeah, I think I'm people sure. realize that and they, they recognize they recognize what they've lost a lot of. Because it does clear out and you do have nice weather, you know, every three or four times a month. But for the rest of the time, the air is gray. It's overcast. When you see the sun, it's a dull orange figure off in the distance, and there are no clouds, but there's just so much pollution. They're sensitive to it, and they want to solve the problem. So is Energime, that's part of your goal then, is to answer issues like that, provide solutions for them that are very doable and easily installed? And I, I, don't know. I don't know if there's an easily installed solution for a lot of what it is they're asking us. What Energime has a tremendous wealth of, what we're lucky with, is that Energime itself is, we're not a huge company, but Energime is a a structure by which we work with a lot of other companies and a lot of other really talented and brilliant scientists who are dealing with these issues, either Mm -hmm. through, you know, creating products and services and applications and technologies or doing the research and development as to how you solve the problems. So when they put these, I, I think most countries uh, that we deal with and most groups that we deal with want an off-the-shelf, how do we solve this problem? And it's sort of, you know, they want to go to Home Depot or, or Costco and buy something that right. they can plug in and the problem solved. But the problem, right. and I'm not saying that's the case with the Chinese. 
I think that they're very sophisticated and they understand the complexity of these problems. But, you know, they're also hopeful that there's a technology that will solve them more easily than what's required to solve these problems, which in a lot of cases is working with new processes that are being developed at, you know, places like Berkeley, Lawrence Livermore Labs, uh, you know, in laboratories across the United States and across Europe and across the world and even in China that need to be tested out and need to be scaled up in size to see how effective they are in reducing the particulate matter that's most dangerous, the heavy metals, the, you know, the NOx, the, you know, the sulfides, things like that. And when you're talking about air pollution, you can't deal with it's You can't get everything out with one process. So you right. have to deal with the sulfurs and the sulfides, and you deal with nitrogen and the heavy metals. They all require different processes. So very often you're talking about a series of technologies that deal with each portion of that pollutant chain in a way where you're you're extracting or taking out that element, then hopefully reutilizing it and recycling it. And that's really what the hope is, is that we can take everything that we're creating now as waste and make it into some sort of a profitable end product such that it's not just a cost for manufacturers and for countries, but rather an opportunity to turn around what was formerly a problem and create something positive out of it. That's the central focus of every one of their approaches. So I think that they get really well. Yeah. Well, the beauty of Energon, then, is that it provides a meeting of the minds, really, to provide, to. to search for solutions. Yeah, I mean, if you've got, if it's a place for scientists and people to bring their ideas and really contemplate solutions together, I, that's that's a beautiful thing. Well, that's we're, a we're trying thing. to do that, but that's that's a that's easier said than done. That's been our aim, and that's what we've been trying to do. You know, when we explain to people that we're the world's first humanitarian corporation, I think a lot of times it goes in out it goes in one ear and out the other. They don't understand what we're trying to do. I mean, Energon right. is trying to be an evolutionary force on the planet by getting people to collaborate, get them into the same room talking, putting their best ideas together, and coming up with solutions that serve humanity for our long-term survival, evolution, and, you know, and prosperity, and to be able to manage our existence on this planet in a way where we're not destroying the home that we live on. The, the real problem comes down in 20 different ways, but generally comes down to the fact that people you know, are self-interested. And that self-interest right. could that self-interest could be reflected in you know in economics and wanting larger shares and wanting disproportionate shares uh, of what it is that they're contributing, or it can be a matter of ego that they need to get the credit for something that requires a team approach. And, and you wouldn't right. think that that would be that big an issue, but to me, particularly in the West, that's a huge issue yeah. because a lot of these yeah. people that we deal with are so so talented and so brilliant, and they've spent a lifetime creating the, the science behind the, the technologies and the applications that they've developed. When they're asked to participate as part of a team, you know, we have been conditioned to be individuals. The West conditions yeah. us to think individually. And that has had, it's had a very positive aspect in the fact that so much creativity and so much forward thinking has, has occurred because of that. But then when we start to work together, you look at the Chinese model and you recognize that they're much superior in that level. And they've got that down. And if they can make the changes so that they can open up their minds or get the technology that they need and embrace some of this, this creative change that we have in the West, then I think that they're evolving at a more a pragmatic, on a more pragmatic pathway than we are right now. Because we seem, we can't seem to get past that other, their stumbling block. They're trying at least. 
and I have to respect that. Yeah. You know, Bill, you mentioned a couple times that if China doesn't get it right, there's huge implications for the entire rest of the planet. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? China right now creates about twice the amount of fossil fuels, more than twice the amount, than the United States, which is the second leading producer of fossil fuels in the world. You've got countries like, like India and Indonesia, which aren't nearly as industrial as China, which create probably much worse pollution on a more limited scale. You know, because of China's immense size, huge population, which is, you know, over, you know, I think approaching 1.3 billion people shortly, that their impact in a society where, you know, they have been, the West has a very, very seductive lifestyle. The United States for years, you know, even through communist countries has, has promoted a very seductive lifestyle of comfortable living, large apartments or houses, nice cars, weekend places, people have boats, people have jet skis. You know, we live an opulent life in the West. And that's yeah. what we see on TV. That's the way, you know, and that's a very seductive lifestyle. So now you're talking about a country that's three, you know, uh, 330 million people in the United States. And you're talking about a society now that's getting the economic wealth that is allowing them to match that lifestyle. And we simply don't have the resources on the planet to support that. Now, Chinese scientists understand that, but it's not just the amount of, of consumables, of, you know, of raw resources, of the metals, and all of the supportive infrastructure that's required for that, but, you know, it's also its impact on how we manage all of those waste streams in a way where we're not totally overwhelming the delicate balance of our environment. And right now, we're losing. So the Chinese are trying to address that, and I think they're, I'm not going to say they're desperate, they are determined. And I'm really hopeful. I, I'd love, you know, we're trying to be a part of that process, because if it's going to start on this planet, we're going to turn this around, and we're going to, we're going to start winning this battle, because right now, we're, we're being defeated. We're, we're losing this battle all over the world. For, for everything that you hear on TV about, you know, a new technology or a great green project and stuff like that, our environment is being decimated and it's being decimated at an increasingly non-sustainable rate to the point where things are are going to be horrendous by mid-century and the impacts are going to be you know on a sci-fi level if we don't reverse this and I and it has to happen immediately I think the Chinese get that if they're to take the lead on it you know the the West is losing out on a huge opportunity because they're going to both take the lead and by doing that, they're going to have the sustainable economic base that's going to allow them to dominate 21st century economics. That's my guess. And the truth is I don't see the West having any opportunity whatsoever that this is going to be a Chinese century because you only have to go over there and recognize the determination and that team mentality that their population has, and you recognize where the West is not going to be able to compete on that level. We just don't have that mentality. There are too many people here who just think about their own little sphere, their own company, their own community, their own family, that we don't tend to think as a group and we don't tend to work collectively as a group to solve problems. And because we have all these competing interests, there's never a direct line to solving a problem. There's too much conversation. There's too much, you know, headwind. There's too many people trying to interfere with any positive action that's taking place. In China, they're eliminating that. And we would look at that and say, well, you don't have free choice. But free choice in this case 
is going to destroy the planet and kill off our species. Right. So the Chinese, I think, right. have got it right. I like the differentiating word that you used there. You used desperation versus determination. I think the one is a very negative view of the future, and the other is has all the positive potential of, you know, putting people's minds together. And it is it is possible. We are in a very, as you say, precarious time. The potential for what can be done to turn things around is very, very real. It's just as real as the threat. Would you agree? Uh, yeah. It's one thing that I, I really admire about Chinese cultures. When I came over there, you know, I, I'm a Westerner, so there are differences in culture, uh, cultural differences that I had to adjust to, you know, in everything, from the way you eat to the way you talk to people the way you, you know, post questions, answer questions. Uh, when I'm there, I'm grateful to be there and I'm honored to be there, but I'm also very, very much trying to be part of it, be part of that team, to adhere to their men, you know, their mentality and their approach such that I can be a supportive member of what it is that they're trying to solve. That's my goal when I go over to China, not to tell them what Good. to do because I don't think they need to be told what to do. I right, think, and right. they don't, certainly don't need to be told what the problem is. They know that. But I think mm-hmm. the Chinese attitude is very much Let's not talk about and dwell about the problem and converse mm-hmm. about that. Let's see what we can do about it. They have a very can-do attitude. That's why they built the Great Wall of China. That's why they can mm-hmm. build cities with incredible infrastructure, infrastructure built on a scale that's hard to imagine. I was in a, a bullet train station in Zhangzhou that the clear span of all of the passengers wait before they embark on their trains in the central area was large enough that you could have put three football stadiums, uh, American football stadiums, side by side by side without a central supportive beam in the entire building. And I was in there, and I was awestruck. Wow. And they build that kind of stuff every single day. Now, wow. the, the downside of it is they're building so quickly that there is a uniformity in terms of look of many of their cities, particularly the cities that are new cities and not historic cities that have, you know, yeah. older buildings and, and, you know, really gorgeous old, you know, uh, ancient architecture as right. part of their, you know, in- integrated into their infrastructure. But the newer cities are all, they're the same, and that's the, the negative part of it. They're having yeah. to build so quickly that they don't have the chance to slowly but surely add infrastructure and do it in such a way where there's tremendous differences in it. And even though it's new and it's modern, the consistency of it is a little bit, if you're from the West, like we are and I am, it's a little daunting. You go in there and you say, you know, this is this is not how I saw the world turning out, you know, that everything looks the same. But I understand yeah. China is challenged, and they're doing, I think, an incredible job considering the challenges. You're, you're talking about a large population that was a poor population, an agricultural population after World War II, that has risen from that very humble beginning and using the genius and the determination of that population, the sacrifice of that population, to achieve the highest level of economic growth, I think, in human history. They came out of such an incredibly low spot after World War II, just all of the the effects of being invaded by the Japanese. I mean, it was just horrendous, the things that happened to them culturally. So it is amazing to think of what has happened there in the last, what, 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah, that's a, that's a, the other thing too, which always disturbs me, is that there's a you know we can't help it because capitals and communism there's always been this this antagonistic you know over you know hanging over the entire relationship. We always look at you know they're the enemy and we're you know whatever. But 
During World War II, the Chinese were our allies. During World War II, the Chinese protected American soldiers and American pilots. Correct. In certain cases, they paid a terrible, terrible price. You know, they lost a half a million people were were slaughtered by the Japanese for that population protecting American pilots. I wish people would know more of that because there's a generosity, I think, that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's just, there is a sense of respect, generosity, and and togetherness that, you know, and it's different from the West, but that you get from the Chinese that I really enjoy when I'm there. And I understand. I think there's a, go ahead. I'm sorry, Bill. No, I think there's certain people that look at that and say, well, you're being naive, you know, they steal our IP, you know, you can't trust that. Yeah, right. You know, like, you, yeah, whatever. you know, I, what I always say to them is they say, and you trust American businesses, you think they play fair? Exactly. No Let fair. Hughes without There's, sin throw the first stone, you know, on that one. I, I would say, I would say that the Chinese understand capitalism far better than most Western mm-hmm. capitalists. And I they think they have, have a depth to their culture, a depth to their history, obviously. They're ancient. I mean, they, there is so much wisdom and wealth there that they have to offer. I think it's a beautiful thing that there can be a combination of the West and the East right there. I, I hope that, I wish, I hope that your, all your endeavors will, you know, come to a real positive fruition. I would love to see that, you know, they embrace what you have to offer and then you'll be the richer for it and so will they because you'll learn well, things I'm sure you already have, things you didn't expect to take from meeting with uh, them. Certainly. It was, a, every day I was there was a learning experience. I will say this. Uh-huh. I think that the key for us getting through this century is very, very simple. The United States and China need to become much, much closer aligned in their efforts, and they need to be working Mm -hmm. together. And all of the underpinnings of competition, negative competition, the stealing, the the hacking, all that stuff needs to disappear, and a level of trust needs to be increased in order for the two cultures to start working together. We cannot exist, and we will not make it without China, and that is exactly the same in reverse. We are tied together at the hip. We are dependent on each other for our survival at this standpoint. And the rest of the world is dependent on us figuring that relationship out and figuring that out uh, quickly. And for all the people who are afraid of China and they're worried about we're going to get into a war, we're worried about you know whether or not they're going to play fair and all that, I say to them, if we don't get this right, that doesn't even matter. Exactly. It's not gonna, it's gonna it becomes be a mute issue. Kids. We're just yeah, trying to we're survive gonna arguing, here. We're going to be arguing over over the last remaining food as our population starved to death. Hmm. And, and granted, the Chinese population will starve to death before ours, but we're going to starve to death also. It's not going to be. We're not. They're not going down alone in this process because once food production is destroyed on a global level, it'll impact everybody and it'll impact us very, very heavily in North America as hmm. well. Fascinating. You know, here's something that's really interesting. I, I back in the 70s when I was at school. I guess that makes me a little bit of an old, whatever, fogey. <laughs> I remember there was a, a leader in China called uh, Mao Zedong, wasn't it? And he had a little yes. book called The Little Red Book. And we were given a copy of The Little Red Book. But I believe it was banned over here. But um, it was a fascinating little book. And, and I, I can understand the um, structure in China now a lot since this conversation. And it it begs the question, whilst they're not particularly religious, I can understand now why the Pope has has come out and tried to say, look, all you Catholics, it's time for us to participate. 
And, and really what you need are large groups of, of uh, population understanding that they need to follow a leader to do what we need to do. Because if you keep having these arguments, as, as appears here, that, oh, there's what climate change, when, when it's obvious, yeah. um, you, you're, you're never going to get on board the bus. Yeah, or in and, this case, and the bullet train. Surprised. There's actually quite a large Christian population in China. In fact, the, our partner that we work with, Angela Zhu, is from New Zealand, but it was born in Beijing and then moved with her husband to Auckland 20 years ago, is a very devout Christian. And we're actually partnered with a group called the uh, China Low Carbon Industry Investment Center, which is a direct arm of the uh, government, central government, to try to help uh, all the regional development reduce their, their carbon impact on the environment. And that's a, a, that's a Christian group. So, you know, there is a religion over there, but it's not... The, the religion within China is not divisive. I think that the folks yeah. who are there have their beliefs, but they also strongly believe in being part of that system where you contribute as a, as a partner, as a team member to a solution. And they're extremely respectful and patient with yeah. the people within their, within their team. You know, that's something that we need to learn in the West that it we is. just don't get. And, I agree. You know, that, you know, when you talk about strengths and weaknesses, that's the strength of the Chinese system yeah. is their ability to manifest critical mass in dealing with an issue rapidly and to get people working rapidly. In the West, we may have all the creativity in the world, but we can't get out of our own way because of our self-interest and the fact that we argue, you know, endlessly yeah. over over basic things that, you know, listen, and there's no argument about climate change. There may be an argument, a public argument, but all the people who are arguing against it are arguing against it because of the economic impact that they're fearful of if, if these changes are made that are going to impact their, you know, their carbon-based uh, you know, production or their food production or things that they're worried about. You, know, you talk about the, you know, the listen, the, the oil industry shouldn't be our enemy. Okay? The Arab Emirates, the World Bank, which is highly invested in this, in this carbon-based you know, energy system, they have, they're all in on carbon-based fuel. So it's very, very difficult for them to make the changes that they need to make. But we should not be at war with them. What we should be right. doing is we should be putting every effort forward to try to figure out ways for them to utilize those resources in plastic manufacturing for construct, uh, you know, make switch or make changeover societally so that these guys can still be very, very productive, make a tremendous amount of money so that they're not worried about making those changes but so that they don't have to actively fight, you know, climate change, you know, with, with scientists that they hire to say that the, the sky's not falling when the sky is falling. That's the problem. You know, we haven't addressed them, and that's the issue. You know, everybody wants to address climate and our problem with resources from a political standpoint, and that's true that that plays a real part in it. But unless we deal with it from the major stakeholders who control the economy, who control economic development around the world, and really give them a plausible economic out, a way for them to make that transition, such that they don't have to keep denying science, you know, scientific fact and scientific you know, uh, uh, warnings about what we're doing to our environment. If we don't get that right quickly, we're doomed. <laughs> you know, there's no two ways about it. Yeah. And I know people look at me and say, well, it's not that bad. You know, this guy is, is being an extremist. It, things aren't that terrible. They are that terrible. We have very little time left. By mid-century, this will have everything that we're fearful of, that we're worried about, will have hit the fan. 
and it will either have hey, made Bill? the adjustments within the next 20 years or it's over. In closing, yes. would you please provide our listeners with um, some inf- contact information for yourself in regard to Energime, uh, Energime University? Would you give us the website and, you know, so forth? Well, the website, thank you, is, is W, uh, I believe, well, hang on one second, I feel terrible. It's Energime University. You can look it up online and get the website. If anybody would like to get in touch with me directly, write me an email, complain, call me a, uh, a crazy person, I'm fine with that. <laughs> and my direct email is Bill at energon.com. I'm always happy to get uh, emails. I respond to most of them. Uh, I'm very busy, but I try to respond to anybody who's interested in having a conversation with me or who wants material or anything like that. I'm generally available to send that out, and I love hearing from people. Okay. Are there any publications so, that people could subscribe to, any blogs or anything like that? Would that all be on the yeah, website? We are, we're starting to – Energon University is going to have a very, very active blog. I've also just completed a book the world we leave uh, our children, which I'm trying to get published still. I sent it out to publishers about two months ago, and I completed it, and I completed my re-edit, and I uh, still have not found the publisher for it. But basically, okay. that's a book that spells out what the challenges are that we're facing this, this coming century, and really what's available for us in terms of solutions and the issues that we have to overcome, you know, in terms of working with each other and the real issues as to why we're being ineffective in our response to solving our problems of mismanaging our resources and diminishing, you know, the health of our environment. So if we have any publishers listening, we want them to get in touch with you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> hey, Bill, always you, a pleasure. Uh, I think I can speak for Chris on this behalf, although I'm sure he's going to jump in here and just Absolutely. tell you how much we enjoy always speaking with you. It's just, I just sit here and I, I just take it all in. I just can't. Here enough, actually. I really enjoy it. It's a great pleasure, and I'm always very, very happy when you guys ask me to be a guest and to uh, put in my 50 cents. <laughs> it's a little bit hey, better. i got to ask you, so what's next? Is it just going to be, um, it's trying to pretty much, that's your focus is what it sounds like. We're, we're the, putting out quite know. a few proposals right now to a lot okay. of different members. When I, on my tour of China, we met with a lot of ministers mayors and, and industry leaders. And they all came okay. back to us with a list of problems that they have, whether that's phosphorus, whether that's, you know, uh, PM 2.5, whether it's trying right. to figure out how to create, you know, higher prosperity for, or, you know, it's, uh, for their rural farmers, you know, how to manage their municipal solid waste. There's, there's a list. There's probably about 20 things that I came back with. So right now what I'm doing is, is we're talking to all of our assets, all of the people that we know, and asking them, how would you solve this problem? What technology is available? What's, what are you working on? You know, we're going to Brookhaven Laboratories. We're going to Lawrence Livermore. We're trying to get some of our best ideas in front of them, whether they're just at the research and development stage, whether they're at a prototype stage, where we actually have ongoing technologies that can be employed by the Chinese. And, and they're looking at it. They're evaluating it. And I think they're going to make okay. the decisions that they think are smart decisions. So basically, this this interview that we're just concluding today, this was Star Wars, and so we'll get in touch with you for the Jedi, uh, the Jedi Strikes Back. That's that'll be coming up. Uh, I, I hope I hope we have that. To the, I hope we have that. I hope that we're, we're I hope working so in too. China. They, anyway, thank you okay. so much, guys. All right, you take care. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Bill. Okay, okay. bye bye. Wonderful day. Bye. Thanks. Bye.